What's up, advocates? We've got, I'm not in my normal home studio, as you can see. We've got a very, very special show today. I have, uh, we've taken the time to sit with Chip Merlin uh, of the Merlin Law Group. For those of you that don't, uh, that don't know, Chip has been practicing uh, property damage litigation, insurance law for over 40 years now. He's also the writer of the Merlin blog. Um, he's uh, Chip, uh, the Merlin Law Group is all over 40, 40 states throughout the entire country, and just just been he's practiced all kinds of claims from Hurricane Katrina to the Surfside Towers that fell down to uh, Hurricane Andrew. He helped start FAPIA, the Florida Association of Public Insurance Adjuster. I mean, this man is well respected in the industry. He's been around for a very long time, and thankfully, he's taken the time out to sit with me and really talk about some some very heated topics in regards to Senate bill changes, in regards to the future of public adjusting and insurance claims and policy and uh, and a little bit on the Surfside Towers as well. We really cut into a lot of really interesting topics, so I think you're going to enjoy this one, so make sure you check it out. Ready? In three, two, one. So, Chip, thank you so much uh, for coming on the uh, podcast, man. Well, it's great to be here. I've seen quite a few of your educational videos and congratulations you seem to have a great following and the content's excellent we're trying we're trying i think it's it's pretty it's much needed i think in our industry you know the reason why i started it personally was really because frankly and when i start i didn't have any training i was thrown out there like thrown out there with the sharks like just go ahead and sign them go ahead and find them go ahead and sign them and i was just sort of figuring out as i go and then luckily after a couple of years, I did find a mentor, experienced public adjuster who was there for me, who was able to answer all my questions and so on and so forth. So I realized that it was definitely a need in the industry for, I don't blame it so much on the firms, but you know, most of the owners of these firms, they're out there doing what they got to do. They don't have time to train their people. So I want it to be a source for people to go to where they can get some training. Yeah, it's a big issue with respect to public adjusting. A lot of the companies put there are adjusters through all kinds of training, and if you go through that and then you become a public adjuster, you're that much further ahead. But what if you don't? And there's really nothing out there. Nothing. As a matter of fact, we started the whole idea of having an apprentice program for new public adjusters at one time just to force some training before people would go out and start public adjusting. Literally, I mean, there were people that were massage therapists one you know, month, the next month they're public adjusters and have no clue in what to do, and anybody can pass a test. My girlfriend, Denise, was out in Texas. She said, let me see how hard this is. She studied for half a day, goes in, she passes the public adjuster licensing exam. She's never practiced public adjusting. Maybe she's hung out with me a little bit too much. But uh, I think there's a big need for the education and and it's, it's changed a lot in the last 10 years. Do you remember the first year of the apprenticeship in Florida? Do you remember what year it was? Oh my gosh, it was after 2006. Six, seven, I think, some right in there, right? I can tell you, 2009. 2009. You know why? That was my first year first as a public time. adjuster. I was looking into it the year before, and then all of a sudden I decide to do this, and they tell me about this one-year apprenticeship at the time. Now it's six months. Yeah. Well, I, I really felt it was needed. Uh, I, I helped, I mean, it's been a while now, I helped push that through. It was, we, we went from a 600 or so public adjusters at the time to 2004, hurricane season hit. We had four hurricanes. Yeah. Then the next year we had Wilma. And all this work and people were going down and taking licensing. Uh, at the time it was an open book test. Mm -hmm. So anybody could pass. That's one and of the we, reasons why I was going to do it. I was we, like, all right, I can went, do this. Right. We went up to over 3,000 public adjusters <laughs> in the state of Florida. 
And I think there was a concern, especially in the leadership yeah. of the Florida Association of Public Insurance Adjusters, that they're just, we can't allow people to go out and do this if it engages the public trust, which it does. And so there needs to be something to help teach somebody or mentor somebody because there's, we need more qualifications for people to do this that are more practical. So one thing I didn't know, um, and, I, and I found out while reading your book, um, Pay Up, and I didn't know that you were responsible for the start of the Florida Association of Public Adjusters. Yeah, it was an interesting day in December of 1992. I got off an airplane with a couple other public adjusters who went to the Napier meeting, and there was literally almost fistfights between the Florida insurance regulators and Napier members. And there was accusations of fraud that were going on, accusations that they're going to have to um, write out public adjusting from being a licensed profession in the state of Florida. And some of the leaders of NAPIA came and approached me about doing something about it. Can we form an association in Florida? So that was the real genesis of how it started. I then approached a, a friend of mine, attorney, Doug Gross, and said, I'm going to do this, and Doug will you help, and we can go and do this together. And, and so we did. We had the first meeting, I think, in January. and. Um, and then follow-up meetings after that. It was small. I think we only had 40-something original founding members. But uh, now the Florida Association of Public Insurance Adjusters is the, the largest public adjuster association that meets on a regular basis um, in the United States. And it's uh, actually a pretty, very professional organization. It is very professional. I'm a part of it myself. I've been a part of it since pretty much I became a public adjuster, so I definitely enjoy it. Um, you mentioned the fist fighting and the accusations of fraud and getting rid of public adjusters, and sounds like a lot hasn't changed. No, really. You know, I, I, I was thinking about that as I was talking about it. Yeah, the insurance industry and the insurance regulators are still saying that there's all kinds of accusations yes. of fraud. And so, I mean, in that case, there, there was, without a doubt, there are some issues that were going on by a group of public adjusters that had come down from New York and, and did certain things. They got arrested. That doesn't mean that 90... 8% of everybody else doing this stuff is, is a crook. And, but it's the same type of allegations we hear over and over again. Certainly insurance company adjusters, most of them, if they're being honest, will tell you we don't like dealing with public adjusters because they always criticize what our work is and what our estimate is. And sometimes we find it difficult to work with public adjusters. And so, you know, there is, you know, difficulty that, that goes on. And when you get into the claims practice and the operation guides that insurance companies have, and you only find this out in the bad faith cases, I mean, they literally will train adjusters on how to, you know, interact with public adjusters, how to keep their own policyholders from engaging with public adjusters and even signing contracts. So that goes on all the time, as unethical as what it is. Wow. But, yeah. Well, you mentioned in your book that insurance companies use the fraud allegations to get what they want in regards to the Senate, in regards to uh, what goes on behind the scenes with law changes and so on and so forth, where they try to make it like, hey, be careful with these bad guys because they're out here committing fraud. Be careful with these other bad guys and we're actually doing this for you when ultimately we all know it's all these things aren't just hurting our industry, but ultimately they're hurting the consumer. Well, you know, first of all, any fraud's wrong, mm -hmm. and uh, and there can be abuse of various types of um, claims in the insurance system. I mean, that's just the way it is. And and 
uh, where we are facing some of that right now, and mm -hmm. I think it's important for uh, policy, the policyholder side, the policyholder advocates to um, not put their head in the sand and really look at what's going on and be honest about the elephant in the room that might be there, as well as to stand up against uh, people that are abusing the insurance system. So, but it doesn't mean that it's just open season on everybody, and there really should be instances and concrete proof examples of the wrongdoing and, and what's going on. So, and we're in this constant debate right now where uh, the insurance industry is always going, it's complete fraud, complete fraud, or it's always the lawyers that are doing this. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and you don't hear a lot coming back from you know, our side, but the truth is there's examples every single day that I can show of insurance companies abusing their own customers and the true need for public adjusters and people to stand up you know, against some of the things that are going on. I mean, the managed care, managed care, managed, managed repair. repair is, is yeah, not managed there. care. Yeah, yeah. But, it's, but it's very similar. Right. I mean, it's the, the health insurance industry took over doctors, essentially, and now they mandate how doctors treat you. You know, how's that really work for everybody? Not too good, I would suggest. Right. And many you know, good doctors have left the field saying it's not the same way it used to be. People get nickel and dimed over and over about the amount that their own health insurance carriers want to pay for. You can't get all the prescription medication you need because they say it's, well, it's just not necessary. You don't qualify while your doctor's saying it is necessary and you need it. A lot of people just go and pay out of pocket for it. Right. Well, if it's not working in the healthcare industry, how do you think it's going to work in the repair industry now that the property insurers are trying to do this? And when we go out and we look at what many of those preferred vendors go do, the quality of the workmanship is just not there. And there's nothing else you can say about it, but, well, they aren't getting paid enough to go do it, and they won't stand up you know, to it. So I, I applaud those contractors that don't give in to mm -hmm. the, let's go ahead and, and give in to the volume mm -hmm. and give in to getting profits, because most of them in the long run come out at saying, I'm not making any more money than I did anyway, and they're really getting pressure to do substandard work. So, as a matter of fact, the, the, the current president of NAPIA used to be a preferred vendor and quit because he said, I'm, I'm just not going to sell my soul to the devil, mm -hmm. you know, for it. So it's, you know, it's an issue. I think it's one of the things that we have to address coming up. It's a big issue. And it's how they sell it too, right? I love how they sell it in this nice little packet with people who are smiling and they're so happy. And this is what we're going to do to you. We're going to bring in all the people that you need. You don't have to go out there and find someone. We'll take care of it for you. All you have to do is pay your deductible and everything else is taken care of when people don't realize that don't understand the insurance industry that yes those people are normally being underpaid they're they're restricted to very strict guidelines as to what they can and what they can't do and then the manager repair program itself not for mitigation but for the actual doing the work after you know people don't understand that you're kind of stuck with it's bad enough having to deal with the insurance company throughout the insurance claims process, but then to have to deal with them also throughout the entire repair process as well, where you're having to go through the middleman, through the adjuster to get to your contractor. Any little upgrade that God forbid you want to do, you're going to have to pay additional for now. And it's like the, it's just, you have no control over anything. And I've, I've yet to hear about a good experience with it. I actually settled a case not too long ago where the manager repair program just went in there and just debacled this place. You should have seen the texture on this wall. You should have seen the mismatching paint that was going on. You should have seen the way all the floors were just not installed correctly and I attacked them and we went after it and we ended up avoiding litigation we're able to settle for a cash amount well Vince I mean for 
the people that are watching this that are public adjusters and, and wanting to know where their industry is going to, I would suggest that they're going to have to get used to dealing with managed repair. I don't think it's going to go away. I think the insurance industry is hell-bent on really trying to push that. And if it's true, then what public adjusters are going to be doing in the future, at least for part of their work, is not so much adjusting work, but also being the critique individual of the construction that's going on and the substandard construction that's going on by insurance companies. So I, I think that we're, you know, got to keep your eyes open what's going on a trend. That absolutely is a big trend. And so what I've been telling a lot of public adjusters, and it's what makes it such a demanding field, is you've got to really understand how construction works. You have to understand the manufacturer's specifications. You've got to follow manufacturer's specifications. It's the only way to do it properly in terms of both the labor as well as the materials you know, that are being placed um, into, to, into the structures. And so it's, uh, you know, it's a changing field you've got, but that's one that I would suggest a lot of public adjusters spend a lot of time on and, and uh, start you know, doing things with the uh, specifications and Construction Specifications Institute you know, is a great place to start so you can really understand what those specifications are that contractors are supposed to be doing during a, a repair or, or a reconstruction. I mean, that does lead me to one of the questions that I had. Where, where do you see, where do you see the future of, most of the audience is public adjusters that are watching, where do you see the future of, of this industry? It's becoming more difficult. Mm -hmm. I think the uh, policies are becoming more and more limited with respect to the coverages that are the typical type of losses. So that, you know, on water damage claims, we're finding a lot of limitations and less you know, and that get a less, you know, people hire the preferred contractors and less certain notification. How do they get away with that, Chip? I'm sorry to interrupt you, but that's one that really, like, when I first started to see that, when Citizens was doing that, and they were giving you this ultimatum, well, we'll value your $100,000 claim if you use our people, but if you don't, we're only going to pay you ten. How is that allowed? How does that happen? That just seems like very mafia of just, like, just we're gonna you're forced to do this how, how, how does that happen well if you think about it the citizens is the insurer of last resort in the state of florida so if you can't get other private insurance that's where you go as a customer uh, citizens being a quasi governmental entity uh, is not typical insurance and is and what they do is go to the regulator saying look we need to change our policy because we don't want to be paying for this so we can keep uh rates even though they're high lower which is and we're going to provide what i call swiss cheese or cheap insurance so you start getting these gaps in insurance coverage that are first in the state of florida being promoted by citizens now i don't know whether or not other insurance companies are telling citizens hey why don't you go do this this year and get the regulator to approve it because once that happens we're going to do then it we're going to go do it too which and is so what happens you, and you kind of see this you know, domino effect that happens year after year where the Department of Insurance gives in to the governmental entity, uh, citizens property insurance, and then it's followed along by the private marketplace. But you see it all the time. I, it's my belief that um, citizens almost acts as a quasi sounding board for the entire insurance industry. It is very cozy. They're very cozy with all the regulators. And there's the policies in, in Florida, are some of the worst policies in the entire United States. Know, as a result of it. I mean, that, that's where we've really gone. So customer protections within the policy itself, 
you know, have dropped you know, dramatically over the last dozen years or so. Tell me more about the lobbyists and the things that go on behind the scenes. Whatever you can say. If it's something that you don't feel comfortable with, then that's totally fine. I bring it up because you do also bring it up in your book as well, where you mention a case, uh, if you remember, I'm sure you do, a uh, State Farm case where it was like a class action lawsuit and it was like, a, I don't know how many billions of dollars and then they ended up they ended up voting or, or, or putting money in, not money in the pockets, but investing in one of the judges' uh, campaigns to get elected. And then ultimately that was a deciding factor of some kind of thing that passed. I don't know, do you remember what yeah, I'm talking about? Entire, I, I remember the entire chapter. So in my book, I talked about oh. how there was a rigged Illinois Supreme Court mm -hmm. that Illinois. got that way because of the influence that State Farm and other insurance companies had through the Chamber of Commerce and other types of organizations that supported a judge who was running, who started running to become a Supreme Court judge because they needed him and his vote uh, regarding a you know, multi-billion dollar class action lawsuit yep. regarding aftermarket parts regarding State Farm. Cars. And so it was, yeah, it was a car case, mm -hmm. and it was going to the Illinois Supreme Court, and they got that judge elected. And sure <laughs> enough, you know, the result was not good for the policyholders. Well, after all that got done, the parties that lost then went back and sued State Farm and a number of other entities for a RICO violation. So this is really racketeering, and and federal judge laid out the entire case allowed the case to go on. It was and about the trial that they set up you know, hundreds of millions of dollars was the settlement. It was still a savings to State Farm. Yeah, for sure. Billions that were in the class action right. case. But you know, I think it goes to show the um, the depth uh, and the power uh, as a result of money and the lobbying you know that can be done and the propaganda that insurance companies can you know, put up into the public spectrum. Of course, who's going to be against it? I mean, policyholders aren't going to come out of their pocket and say, oh, let's go ahead and try to defeat the propaganda. It's, there is no other side. So it's, you know, it's what they have done, and it's very strong. And it's strong in the state of Florida as well. I mean, we've been very fortunate, I think, to have a concerned legislators. I get up there. I, a lot of policyholders that our clients don't know that we're, at, we're, we're advocating for them long before that we're our uh, um, they're our clients. I mean, we are really their advocate up there and, and working hard, and there's some other good attorneys too. I wish there were a lot more. There aren't. The truth is, there's just not. And there's always seems to be a few of us that are up there year after year, you know, fighting the good fight. But I have met a lot of good legislators that want to do the right thing, you know? And it's, so what's it's the problem? difficult though because you know for every me there's 20 lobbyists that are also have their ear with the incessant you know what you mentioned fraud or statistics that are made up that come from god knows where mm -hmm. you know up there and and there are some legitimate concerns that we have in and that the insurance industry should have i mean the the truth of the matter is we all need an insurance industry that's making profits and we need sustainable profits for them so that they uh, are not about to go broke. You know, it's the issues of them not making profits that's bad for them, and it's bad for policyholders as well, too. And it needs to be addressed. And so I think there has been some legitimate needs for some changes in the laws, 
Uh, I know it's not going to be good for a number of individuals and entities. I know contractors, the Senate bill had just passed in the right. special session, essentially did away with a lot of AOBs, but there's also a lot of AOB abuse. I mean, it's just, right. I, I don't know what anybody can say about it, and the legislators say it too, and the roofers, most of the roofers, I know we'll talk about it as well, but there's a small, you know, it's like one of our attorneys said, how do 80% of all these lawsuits get filed by just a few law firms and a few you know, actors that are doing this over and over and over again, and it just, you know, there's the issues that came up that frankly ruin it for everybody. Right. So, you know, we, we're, the contractors are, and I believe it's going to be constitutional what they pass. There's a legal challenge to it. I, that aspect, I, I don't think that there's any particular right that people have to have their attorney's fees paid for by the insurance industry. We're fortunate in Florida that we have that statute that protects policyholders, but obviously it was taken away from contractors because you can't assign that right to third parties any longer. How long do you think that lasts now that that's been passed? How long do you think that lasts here in the future? What do you mean? The attorney how? fees and cost statute. Well, I think it'll be under attack next <laughs> year. I already know it's going to be under yeah. attack. A lot of people have already said it's going to be under it's attack. It's a concern of mine. Frankly, it's already been under attack. I mean, right now we have to file a notice of intent. Yep. So. If you don't, that's it. Your case so, is done. I mean, unlike, unlike any other contract that you've got in the state of Florida, somebody doesn't pay you, doesn't do what they're supposed to do, dadgummit, you can go down there and hire an attorney and go sue them to go make them do what they were supposed to do by a, a promise. Now the insurance industry has got, well, yeah, we broke the promise, but before you sue us, you have to do all these other various things mm -hmm. first, too. I mean, only in the state of Florida would this come up. And actually it was copied somewhat by the state of Texas, but not as much. You know, it, for here it's any type of loss for any first party property claim. You got to file this intent to sue. So mm -hmm. they get an, you know, extra time to take a look at it before they get sued. And if you don't get a certain amount in a recovery at the end, you're, you may or may not get your attorney's fees. Right. So, I mean, there's been a significant impediment to getting paid attorney's fees that eventually will come out of the policyholders you know pocket if it's if it even if you win you if you don't win enough you're not gonna get your attorney's fees paid so you know it, and maybe that's uh, we're gonna see how that legislation works I think it's gonna take years before we see the ultimate you know result of it because it's really just starting to come back with the newer policies right, right now so a question I get asked a lot is 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 this a good industry for me to get into? And we, we've already touched on it, but I'm going to just like, elaborate a little bit. Since 2009, you know, when I first became a public adjuster, I have to be honest, I was always worried about the future of the industry. I was always worried if public adjusters were going to still be around because we're always being under attack. What I try to tell the new guys that come in and the questions that I get is I tell them that. I tell them all the time, like, it's okay. We're always going to be around because, frankly, there needs to be an advocate. I'm, I'm, I'm convinced in my head that there needs to be an advocate when you're going up against big, bad insurance companies. Are they going to make the policies tighter? Are they going to make our laws and restrictions you know, much more limited? Yeah, I'm sure that's going to continue to happen. But I do feel that a public adjuster is a necessity and does need to be out there to just advocate for the small person. Um, with that said, you mentioned MRPs and you mentioned limits and stuff like that. I mean, what's... What does insurance look? What does the what does insurance look like twenty years from now? Like, is there just going to be nothing that's going to be covered? Like, what is there just zero coverage for everything, or what? Twenty years is a long time to make a guess at, but you know, I can give you pretty good guesses about what's going to be five years from now. Okay. At least the trends that are going to go. That 
there, without a doubt, the current trend is toward managed repair and insurance companies uh, trying to do the repair process themselves because they think they can do it for less money than of what course. they pay out in claims. Now, whether or not that's going to, you know, pan out or not for them, you know, we're going to go see. Uh, certainly, I'm not going to just sit back and let them go do it and then do shoddy workmanship for policyholders. Right. So, and I think I've indicated already that that doesn't mean your industry's the industry of public adjusting. We have way. a process behind those. You're just going to have to do something different, and you have to learn how to process those claims. Which is what I explain well to too. people. And I, I think that's important. Even in our law firm, we're spending a lot more time on that. The issues with respect to um, policies that provide full coverage. Just adequate coverage. There's a lot of gaps in coverage that are getting worse. And so long as the regulators are going to allow insurance companies to write out coverages, which they do. So the insurance companies are always competing on price because what happens is everybody wants the least expensive insurance. Historically, there was a reason why there was a standard fire insurance policy. That was mm -hmm. to prevent insurance State companies farm. from selling that stupid cheap insurance that's almost worthless. And you know, over 140 years ago, we were having standard fire insurance mm -hmm. policies. So there's a consumer movement now um, that we're actively supporting regarding a minimum all-risk insurance policy that you can't go less than this. It's just not right. Yeah, but and then they put in the endorsements and the exclusions. That <laughs> but again, that's the reason why you would have a minimum standard of what they are. Okay. And um, and I, I'm hopeful that legislation, United Policyholders has been pushing you know, very hard on that particular program, and we support United Policyholders. Um, and any time I get a chance, I talk about this, you know, gap in insurance that is going on. I still think until that happens that there will be growing and growing and greater amount of gaps in the insurance coverage as insurers try to both compete against each other and pay less on claims uh, through any kind of artificial means. If your roof's over a certain age, we're mm -hmm. only going to pay actual cash value or they have a schedule mm -hmm. that's going to go down. We're only going to pay up to $10,000 on water or $5,000 on water. Um, we're not going to pay to tear out you know, parts of your floor anymore if your pipe bursts. We're only going to pay to mm -hmm. replace that portion of the pipe, but to get there, that's going to come out of your own pocket right. now. Uh, you know, there's just been massive changes in the policies. Even, of course, I've been doing this now for 40 years, but you know, uh, the policy 40 years ago at least with respect to the coverage provided in the residential policy was much greater with fewer exclusions and today it has a great just many more exclusions you know so we, we've seen a deterioration of the product that eventually has got to stop and I think there's going to be over the next five years a lot more debate at the National Association of Insurance Commissioners about what this insurance product should you know look like and the wording that goes into it is going to be looked at, I think it has to be looked at, you know, in far greater detail by regulators so that we don't have this continued process of insurance companies doing the craziest things in the world. Like in California, we, well, we insure fire, but not a wildfire. They literally try to put an exclusion. We don't exclude, we don't cover wildfire. Oh no. Oh yeah. So, I mean, and, 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 you know, without even approval from you know regulators, but how many people don't right. you know know that? I mean, and so this wording is extraordinarily important. It means so much because that's 
that is the contract, and you can change you know, little small things, even a word of, um, you, know, we, we, <laughs> you know, we might cover all kinds of various things, but we don't cover them if they're man-made. You know, so like the blasting, you know, that goes on in Miami. Next, but that's, that's my, if it's man-made, we don't cover that. Really? You know, that's, you know, you're taking 90% of all the claims out by doing that. Yeah. So, and it gives a competitive advantage to those insurance companies now say, hey, come, we sell great stuff, or they have a stupid commercial, or they're the Geico, or make fun of various losses. Come by, we have great insurance, really? But you don't cover this, and these other guys over here do. I heard there was and nobody's gonna read that small print. You know, They don't even give it to you in they advance. They don't even give it to you. That's like, the thing I, I was just gonna say. You can go to the supermarket, and you can pick out what your apple and orange are gonna be, and you can compare them right there. You can't compare no. the insurance policies. No, they, the, uh, they give you your limits and the, how much it costs. That's pretty much it. They don't give you anything else. But I, I think that there's a need, and you stressed it. I mean, I, was, we, I spent a lot of time up in the, with regulators, and this goes back, has, has been recent, but you know, 15, 20 years ago, you know, trying to get the code of ethics with respect to public adjusting what they ought to be. And I've made various suggestions for, you know, legislation that needs to happen for the profession just to make certain it's at a higher level. I think if the leadership of public adjusters will always try to think of our, our main goal is to serve policyholders the very best we can. And if you're constantly trying to raise that bar, mm -hmm. that's the best way to safeguard the profession. It's not... And, and I've been pushing that. Same thing with lawyers and everybody else. But if you really want to, you know, put yourself on a, on a, people need us, you then got to raise your own bar for what the standards of conduct are going to be. There's nothing that angers me more than a public adjuster telling me that he walks away from MRPs or he walks away from different limits and he just walk. I'm like, dude, like the people still need our help. Like that's what we're here for. Like you can't just say, ah, well, you have a manager pair program. I'm not going to get paid. So you go ahead and handle it yourself. If a loss occurred, the loss that the claim needs to be made and you need to help them fight it. And chances are, you know, we have a process behind the MRP where we we give them such hell that eventually they're just like, okay, fine, you know, they cut a check. You know, it doesn't happen all the time, but you still have to work it. You have to work it to a point because that's what we do. We represent the policyholder. Well, I mean, I, and I think that's what public adjusters are supposed to do. Yes. And, and again, it's a changing uh, market. It's a very, very dynamic profession. Yeah. Everything, I mean, just the way you go about doing losses today versus mm -hmm. the way you would do them 30 years ago um, is significantly different. The way public adjusters practice is different. I do worry about you know, people that are in it just for the money, though. Mm -hmm. Um, I do worry about people just trying to quote leverage up. That's the big thing. I go leverage, scale up, and that's what everybody talks about. So, you know, versus really trying to do a great quality product for the clients that you've got. And so, I thought that the legislature was uh, did a great thing by requiring that if you take on somebody as a a client, you got to have your estimate done in a certain amount mm -hmm. of time. I like that too. You know, it prevents people from taking on too much work and not delivering and delaying things and vice versa worse. too they have to they have to give us their estimate within like seven days after we requested to i kind of like that so insurance companies should have been doing that to begin with if they're yeah. acting in good faith i yeah. don't know you know it sh there shouldn't have been 
a need for you know a piece of legislation that way. But uh, had we had stronger <laughs> regulation by you know insurance commissioner, those types of practices. I also like. Happen. I also like the thing that they pass where there's gonna there's gonna be a lot of investigating is as to the the numbers behind everything as to how many how many claims involve a public adjuster, how many claims go to litigation, how many claims are underpaid, how many claims have you, I forgot what it's called, but there's like some kind of division that's gonna be doing all that. It's gonna take some years to really get the numbers back, but I thought that was interesting too. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't know how it's gonna be you know used, and I don't know you know numbers. Depends who's behind it, I guess. And, well, I mean, it's sort of like uh, insurance commissioner Altmaier and I. Well, he had words for me because I essentially indicated that the statistics regarding closed claims that he had told the legislature was false. just a false premise because the only way that these insurance companies can close that many claims that quick is to wrongfully close them to appease the insurance commissioner's office because claims go on. They don't just start. They'll go on for six months, nine months, a year. They close them. You know, I had <laughs> the funniest like. We had this uh, claim practice case, bad faith case, go on against uh, FedNAT. And my client literally wrote an email saying, hey, you know, don't close my file. We're not done. You haven't even paid me any contents yet. You said you weren't going to pay anything until I gave you the entire contents list. You know, there's a number of things wrong with that are going on. First, you shouldn't be closing the claims file. Second, why not pay as you go along? If she wanted to, she, you know, and where were you to go? How come you didn't send somebody out to adjust the contents and give her a check right away? Right. I mean, there were all kinds of wrong things going on. And I, for some reason, you know, where's the insurance commissioner and the regulators on that? And they just haven't been there. And so there is a issue with respect to, you know, people getting abused by insurance companies in the state of Florida. And maybe the concern is, well, we're afraid to do anything to these insurance companies because they're just going to leave the state or they're having a tough time making profits as it is. So right. we're just going to let them run roughshod over people. And so we're getting a lot of one-way regulation you know, going on, not protecting the policyholder, but instead you know, trying to protect the insurance company and our legislature is to be congratulated for passing a statute that shouldn't have been needed to be in with because our insurance commissioner won't do anything about it. What can we do? What can we do on our end? Public adjusters watching, contractors watching. What is it that we can do on our end? And participate in and participate in the in our democracy. I mean, know who your know who your elected official is. Mm -hmm. Participate in the election. Ask, tell them what you do for a living. This blah blah blah. And this is how I go about doing it. If you have the money, you want to support them, support them and make certain that they're fully knowledgeable about what's going on and that you're engaged. I don't necessarily think you have to go all the way up to Tallahassee. It's a pain in the neck to get to Tallahassee. It's our like state capital if it was in Orlando would be so much better because it'd be more centrally located for everybody. Right. You know, it was only in Tallahassee because it's centrally located between you know, Pensacola and Jacksonville 100 years ago, 120 right. years ago. So, you know, we've, I go up there all the time, but I, I, I would encourage people to participate. I, I think it's good to participate with the floor, if you're a public adjuster, participate with the Florida Association of Public Insurance Adjusters. If you're a contractor, you should be participating with your contractors association, because the truth is there's more power when you combine interest and you do get and pay for some professional lobbyists that you might not be able to do individually, but you can do collectively, you know, together. So, and I would encourage 
you know, public adjusters and contractors to do as much as they can that way, because if not, the insurance industry, I mean, they've got more money than God. Yeah. They do, well, they I heard a sea of lobbyists up there. There was a CEO of a famous red insurance company that was paid, up, I heard, $24 million or something last year. Well, I, you know, they get paid, a, there's a lot of money that's being paid. Plus all the Super Bowl commercials, plus they got to pay Chris Paul. And they got to pay the other guy, right, on all those commercials. Uh, Aaron Rodgers, right? It's but, like I mean, but none of that's illegal. No, that's I know, but it's perfectly legal. Why are they the most it. difficult ones? <laughs> they are the most difficult ones. You know, I. Um, you don't what, have to answer that. <laughs> it's kind of a weird thing to say that you know some of the insurance companies I am concerned about in the state of Florida were taking very hardline stands. I think because they just didn't have the cash to pay, and I actually felt. Sorry for some of those adjusters. I don't like seeing insurance companies go broke. I, I want them to be profitable. I want them to be fairly profitable. Right. Uh, I've been a you know critic of some of the management um, contracts that allowed some of the investors to pull out you know monies from the those Florida-based companies during the good years when we weren't having hurricanes and we should have been building up more surplus. Um, it's not, and that's a different issue than you know what's going on with respect to all the litigation and, and uh, the other things. But it's still, it's a very complex issue that we've got in our Florida marketplace. Mm -hmm. And um, but it's one that I'm seeing increasingly, you know, issues about if you live in the Midwest where we have uh, hail damage. I mean those. Hail damage storms seem to be getting more ferocious with bigger yep. hail balls and more frequent. Yep. And so there's a hail issue there, and the insurance companies are changing their policies and providing less coverage with respect to hail. Mm -hmm. In the wildfire areas of Colorado and in California, we have insurance companies that aren't selling insurance. And so there's a how do we get an insurance marketplace for wildfires? You know, the same way that in California they had problems with earthquakes and they couldn't get earthquake coverage. And, and for the southeast and along the eastern seaboard in the Gulf of Mexico, you know, flood insurance, you know, how do we get flood insurance? And so it's, there is no free lunch right. and, and insurance. Eventually, you know, frequency, the number of claims you have times the average amount paid on claims, that's a number that's got to get met plus the overhead plus a fair profit right. and everything else that insurance companies have to pay to stay in business right. and you know it, it can make insurance much more expensive but if that's what the cost is socially well that's kind of the cost of having home ownership no matter where you're at right. and, and, I, and I think you know we need to have more honest discussion you know from our elected officials that are insurance regulators about that with homeowners and that usually starts at the time you first purchase a building, that there is this additional cost for insurance. If you can't afford the insurance, you can't afford the house right. or the structure or whatever it is. Right. So, you know, I, I, I'm concerned about that. And without that type of understanding and appreciation for, you know, insurance, it's we, we, we the only other thing you can do is cut the coverages. And, and that's not good for anybody. Um, Chip, let's switch gears a little bit. I wanted to, a lot of people don't know that you were the representing attorney for the Surfside building that collapsed in Miami. What was it? Was it a year ago now? Little, it was when I was in Alaska. A little over, a little over a year. Just ago. over a year ago. Yeah. So I was one of a number of attorneys. Oh, okay. I mean, this okay. Is a, this is a dream team collection of attorneys, uh, a dream team judge, 
mediators, even the defense counsel were some of the best defense counsel in the United States. And um, I'm not doing personal injury work, obviously. I really focus on insurance coverage issues, and that's all I do. But the class counsel asked if I would get involved as their coverage counsel for the class of victims, mm -hmm. which is a little bit different for me because now all of a sudden I'm looking at liability policies and big liability policies and you know policies that are contractor liability policies and it's not that it's you know that much different but it's different enough you know and and the law is a little bit different with respect to making claims um, work there's coverage for the third parties that cause the accident and of course I mean I was in bed I got a phone call from an engineer that was on the task force with one of the first responders out there and you know um, it was horrible from you know what everybody indicated and the first things that most people were talking about is well those owners you know they just weren't taking care of their property and they let everything fall apart and that's you know what happened and that's kind of a weird thing I mean buildings just don't fall down in the United States I mean we have all kinds of rules and regulations about maintenance and upkeep you know of them and we have engineers go out there there's other professionals that are you know supposed to you know look at buildings and you know how did this all happen so I mean it's really an unbelievable tragedy you know that happened to the victims and and still you know since you know shivers up and down but you know there's there's obviously accountability for what happened and the question is you know who and how and how this all happened and I, I, I you know I was honored to be asked you know to do this uh, I found it academically stimulating because the people that I was working with were really dedicated attorneys that are working all hours of the day and night and the weekends and and it was fun I mean, in a weird way. I believe people say, I mean, I had, I had a blast doing this and, and working trying to um, go through various coverage issues that were coming right. up and the insurance companies on the defense side, of course, they don't want to pay if they don't have to and the sums of money that we were talking about were yeah. huge and they also keep coming back well they weren't taking care of the building you know and well you know i don't represent the association i was representing the class of individuals who got who, who were either living there or a guest there who got killed or maimed or who lost their homes it's not their problem and it really wasn't their problem but i wanted to help the association council and the receiver that was appointed uh, for the association, I mean, he's an all-star too, and their attorneys were all-stars, and they appointed some you know, great coverage counsel for the association that I frankly worked hand-in-hand -hand with because um, we had a common interest to go get as much money as we can for everybody right. you know, that's a victim of this. And to, to say that it got done in a Less than a year. I mean, that just, that, I got I got I, claims that have been open for three or four. I got claims in small claims court. Yes. We can't get done in a year. Yeah. I mean, it's ridiculous that our you know legal system moves you know so slowly. As a matter of fact, I, I think from the policyholders' perspective, you know, in our viewpoint, when we're in jurisdictions that don't move along their cases fast. And almost prompts the insurance companies to take well what the heck you either take this or we'll see you in four years from now before you get any of the money that's 
the worst legal system we have. We as lawyers need to do better and speed up the resolutions that we can get in the day Yes, of, please. You know, whatever we can do. I know I hear it all the time. As a matter of fact, uh, a, a year ago, our firms, you know, within our own firm, our training was what can we do to uh, make our experts and our expert witnesses better mm -hmm. and hire the best expert witnesses and how do you handle expert witnesses and everything about expert witnesses. This year, our point of emphasis has been on what can we do to speed up the resolution of the claims for our clients. And you know, we've been working really, really hard on that, but it takes, we can only do so much. It takes, first we have to get the insurance company on board with this. The second thing is we gotta get the judges on board with this. So in the right. Champlain Towers, that judge was the best. I mean, just the best. No nonsense, polite, gentlemanly, but no nonsense. We're gonna move this along. He said, he set the tone from the very beginning. I want this case to be in trial and uh, within a year, you know, and he held us to it. I mean, it. he pushed the matter along. So if somebody wasn't going to have a witness show up, you know, and uh, I mean, he wanted witnesses to be depositions to be done instantaneously. He nice. wanted insurance policies to be turned over. He wanted to know if you have an issue, I want to know what the issue is. He set deadlines like no other judge you know, I've just been about in front of setting deadlines and and we were fortunate that we had such great attorneys to work with. I mean some really specialized people doing this. One of the counsel from Philadelphia does nothing other than collapse claims of buildings. You know, I got, you know, so it really was a, a neat, you know, way to watch, you know, our legal system work at its finest and we got it all done. That's amazing. I, I think, you know, and you know, as we speak right now, some of the clients are going through their individual little presentations about what their individual claims can be worth because they've got to still divide all that up. But that's um, being done in a manner that is not going to, I think, cause more trauma. I mean, because it's all, every single time people have to go through this, the trauma is revisited. Right. And um, you know, it's 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 rare that I I think I see. Um, just such good legal work from so many different aspects, and that's the reason why um, it, it 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 it's finished the way it has finished. And I, I think everybody, um, you know, can be proud of our Florida justice system for that particular case and the people participating in. It. I even think the insurance defense attorneys participating in it, and there's just so many really great people that did it. I you know, it's this wasn't Chip Merle, and I right. I played my role in it, but this was a big production um, that it's great when you see things really work out. That's awesome. It, it, reminds, me, it reminds me a lot, I guess, of the 9-11 case, right? Would it be compared to that a little bit where a you had the people? That's still, that's still dragging on. Of right, course, right. you know, if, we, if you think about that, that, you know, was quite a bit, you know, different and there were... Uh, acts of terror not usually acts covered. Acts of terror not to cover, but <laughs> a lot of it, you know, there wasn't a... There was also government money mm -hmm. that was placed in, you know, into it, and the, you know, insurance industry also wanted to have its uh, subrogation interest protected as well too. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, that that, and that's still going on. As a matter of that's fact, ridiculous. I mean, there's still it's still, you know, going on, and it's been what, 20 years now. Right. So, you know, ours won't be going on. It's, right. That's fantastic. It's really amazing what we were able to do. Um, Chip, you mentioned 40 years. So yeah, 1982 at this time, I was working in uh, a de uh, working as a 
at this time in 1982 where I was working as a law clerk um, for a property insurance defense firm that Paul Butler headed up. It eventually became known as uh, was Paul B. Butler and Associates and it was, we had six attorneys. Uh, uh, when I joined, I guess I was the seventh attorney and uh, eventually became um, Butler Burnett, Wood and Freeman, eventually became Butler, Butler Pappas is what is known for a long time until uh, John Pappas retired. Uh, but that was where I started doing this. I was uh, very, I did my undergraduate work in two and a half years. I didn't like hanging around in school. I, and you know, I wanted to find a place that uh, would allow me to get out of the library and actually do legal work. Um, and they made that promise and really came through. So I was able to start working on cases under Paul with boilers blowing up, satellite you know, issues, cases all over the country. And so, so I was, I always was, property damage? Always, always property damage, so okay. yeah. And um, there was a period of time that in uh, my law firm that I had some people that were doing personal injury work, but I would stick on the coverage side. I might have to go down there and help try a case out, but I was not the usually see attorney. I, usually see both. Yeah, usually in a large law firm, they do both. There was, and, I've noticed. Yeah, and our, our firm had grown, and I kept getting referrals for personal injury, even though I kept wanting to do you know, really first party. So uh, there was a brief period of time that I, was, I had a partner for about three years, and that didn't work out, and he was primarily doing the personal injury mm -hmm. part. And, from 2000, 2003, but... Uh, so you said in 1982, so 1982 you were working... So I was a clerk, so I worked, uh, and then I pat got out of law school in 1982. Mm -hmm. um, and I worked doing insurance defense until February of 1985. Mm -hmm. um, I had a client that I won a couple, couple telephone rate cases for in front of the Public Service Commission. Mm -hmm. We had administrative trials that we won somehow, and so that client was thrilled with me and helped you know, set me up with my own law practice, and I just switched over and started doing first-party property work, and I got uh, referrals from uh, Iris Saracen, the late Iris Saracen, and, uh, and one from Dick Tutwiler right away, and, and off I went on my first-party insurance career as a punk 26-year-old attorney in 1985. So I've been representing policyholders since then um, and uh, eventually started you know, expanding. So now we've got about 40 attorneys throughout the United States with Is that offices. Was when you were 26 and you started the Merlin Law Group? Yeah. With a partner who was doing personal injury? I didn't have any partners. I started, <laughs> I started with a table that... Uh, you know, literally, with like the, the the client had built out an office, but we didn't have any furniture, and so literally it was like, what do you call those bricks with some plywood there right. and a chair, and you know, starting that way. I mean, it was very maybe foolish to start off, you know, practicing law that way, and um, but you know, it all worked out. I think like a lot of small business people, it all works out, and eventually slowly but surely kept gaining you know, traction and more and more work throughout. And in 2004, you know, we had those hurricanes that happened here in Florida, you know, but I was, I was doing, already doing cases in other jurisdictions. But uh, the year following that, Katrina hit, mm -hmm. and I was up in Mississippi half the time you know, as a result of that. And, that's when we started really branching out to other states and um, 
and doing work much more outside the state of Florida. Most of my work now is outside the state of Florida. Interesting. And I'm licensed, I think, in 12 different states. <clears throat> and, um, you have to take the bar for all those states? So I had to take the full bar in four different states. Uh, and it's crazy. The, the, wow. You know, yeah, California, Florida, uh, New Jersey, and Mississippi. And it's the one in Mississippi that gets me reciprocity almost with everybody else, uh -huh. so, which is kind of a crazy That's weird. thing. So, but Florida, California, and New Jersey just don't give any reciprocity to anybody, so they don't get anything back. But um, I enjoy the practice in, in different you know, play. And I like traveling. I grew up as a kid traveling, and I get to see a lot of different, you know, different type of losses and, mm -hmm. and how laws vary from state to state. Uh, it's a lot to keep up with, but uh, and if you don't mind the travel in this business, and it allows me to go to where the, you know, the game is being played, so to speak. You know, where's the, you know, where's the most outrageous losses going on from a hurricane, from wildfires, from earthquakes, to whatever's going on. And I've, I've been able to go up to the New York, and, and I think I spent 200 and, what year we spent? 260-something days at the Red Bank Marriott, you know, Courtyard Marriott up there. And uh, I got to see all of New York City, you know, during that time after Superstorm Sandy. Right. And um, that was a that's where we started the uh, APA was as a result of that one, yeah, because of all the and, and fraud that went on there. Yeah, Doug Quinn actually ended up being I, I kind of forgot about that, but Doug uh, was was he hired another law firm up there, and that law firm was um, having some issues, and their clients, like 600 of them, then came over to our law firm, Doug being one of them, and it was wow right at the time when we then started getting some really good settlements with respect to national flood and because of all the things that you know that that happened up there regarding the fraudulent engineering practices. i'll never forget that 60 minutes report i mean i'll never forget that thing yeah. that they were just talking about all these fraudulent engineering reports i couldn't believe it well it you know unfortunately that that's been an issue i mean that was the issue in hurricane katrina mm -hmm. um, i think some of the more recurrent issues that we see much more often than you know, um, changed engineering reports without the engineer's consent are mm -hmm. the changed estimates that are going on so that the field adjuster will write one estimate and then without any transparency or honesty, the desk adjuster will change the numbers. I've, you know, and, I've, and that's a big issue. That's I've lost count. I mean, it's not like that. That's just fraudulent. But I've lost count at the amount of independent adjusters that reach out to me on social media, say they're sick and tired of working as an IA. And anytime they put an estimate together, the adjuster calls them back and says, you need to take this, 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 this out. Yeah, they're tired of it. It's uh, It actually ended up having, you know, in the Texas Windstorm Association, some mm -hmm. of the executives, you know, were criminally charged with having and mandating that those changes took place because they were ripping off Texas Windstorm and that, uh, you know, customers, and that was after Hurricane Ike. Mm -hmm. You know, why it doesn't go on more often is beyond me. I think part of Doug Quinn's uh, mission is to, yes, those people should be criminally prosecuted. Right. They're essentially reaching into people's pockets and taking money away that should be going to them as a result of these wrongful acts. It's every bit as fraudulent as somebody 
you know, that's burning down their, their building or, or taking a hammer to their roof and intentionally destroying it to get insurance money. You know, both are wrong. But it only seems that, you know, the authorities seem to only go after policyholders rather than, you know, the insurance companies. Well, but we know this is go we know this is a systemic problem right now just because so many independent adjusters are sick and tired mm -hmm. of the desk adjusters changing their numbers. Well, Doug was the first one. Doug and APA were the first time where I heard the term insur insurer fraud. Right. You know, or just insurance fraud. As soon as you tell somebody about insurance fraud, the first thing they think of is you know somebody going up with a hammer and breaking something like that. But no, insurance fraud works on both ways, and it's very prevalent on the other side as well. It happens. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I just we're involved with cases all over the country, and it's yeah. And I won't say most of them have you know fraud. They don't. You know, but when it shows up, it can really show up in just very clandestine way. Uh, a report that's not issued, a report that's written in a certain way with a wink and a nod, well, maybe nobody will ask about it. I mean, one of the classic ones was a uh, engineer who wrote a hail damage report, and I said, well, what about, and he said, there's no hail damage, and I said, well, what about the, at the very top, you know, all, all the shingles are just blown away up there, why, why don't you have any of that down there? And he goes, because I always ask for a hail report, not a hail storm report. If they'd asked me for a hail storm report, I would have reported about the wind damage that happened. Instead, I only reported about the hail. And I just, you gotta be kidding me, you know? And, you know, I just, you know, things like that that are just, and, and don't get me wrong, most uh, adjusters, I don't think, conduct themselves that way. I think most right. people in the insurance field with insurance companies know that that's wrong and, and that type of conduct wouldn't be tolerated. Mm -hmm. You know, um, sometimes people get these crazy ideas about doing things and they try to justify them, you know, but it's really criminal because you're ripping people off. Exactly. Chip, you want to tell us about your books or your new book? I read the, so I read, read Pay Up, yeah. but I have not. So I, got, I got Pay Up, and you've read that one. I've read and that it's got one. Some great stories. Yep. And nothing else that'll put you to sleep. <laughs> you know, but it's the, good for the nightstand, you know. You know. So when I was talking with Forbes Books about you know doing that book, I, I reached an agreement with them about um, having a, a publication that would be done involving um, a sailboat that I bought. Uh, called Merlin, and this boat was—I didn't name this, you know, 70-foot boat Merlin. It was named by its boat designer in 1977 when it was first built. Bill Lee uh, had this idea that if you build a sailboat for ocean racing that's very, very light, ultra light displacement boat, that it'll float better, like a ping pong ball flight float better than a brick, mm -hmm. and it should allow the boat to go much faster. And, and he was right. I mean, the downside is for a lot of people, he thought it was extraordinarily dangerous. And you only like fly? Kill, okay. You're, you're going to kill people. <laughs> the boats. You know, Too the, light. The, the, he got a lot of criticism from people that thought that, you know, a lightweight boat out on the open ocean is going to end up upside down. <laughs> right. and, and everybody's, it's going to capsize. Right. And people are going to drown. And it was, what he was doing was almost, you know, tantamount to, you know, a, a criminal, you know, act of, of manslaughter just about by allowing that to happen. But instead what happened was the boat set a record 
and it stood for 20-something years, and then it changed the way sailboats on ocean racing sailboats have been designed ever since, that you know they do float better uh, out there with light weight, and they do go faster. And, um, and still to the day, that's how you know, ocean racing sailboats and all sailboats are typically uh, designed. So I read, first read about the boat when I was uh, in college in a Sports Illustrated article, and it would talk about how the, some of the shape was because, designed only because of the parameters were built in a chicken coop. I mean, how many boats get built in a chicken coop? And huh. So they had to turn it over, and they didn't have enough money to almost finish it, so it had to be light in a way. But, um, and by this uh, yacht designer, is kind of a hippie. It was built out in the, in the Monterey area, and, uh, and it goes out and wins the race you know, beat and just shows everybody that they're wrong. And so I, you know, the, the, the book Maverick really came back because Bill Lee is a maverick that way. And, and part of it was I grew up, my father was in the Coast Guard. I grew up sailboat racing. I loved sailboat racing as a kid. And, and uh, I promised myself when I was uh, 19 years old, if I ever had a chance to buy that boat, I would. And it came up for sale in 2017. And, and uh, off I go and, and went and bought it. And now I've racing it and so I decided to write some of uh, you know, the second book and it's while it's while it says it's really about you know sailboat you know race I was gonna say is it about sailboat boat, racing or is it about also, claims it's also about uh, you know some of the life and some of the lessons I think that I've learned cool over the last 40 years and so it's a much uh, I think it's a much better read almost everybody who talks about said chip this is a great book you know you ought to you ought to think about writing some more about that. And, nice. Um, is, it on, is it for sale yet? It's for sale. It's on Amazon.com. Awesome. You can go get it and get your audio book if you want. And you can get it in the Kindle edition. You can go get it anyway. And I've got one for you that I signed, I think. That's yeah, it. Here, and this is for you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Know, you. So, but it's, uh, I think it's, it's a good book. It's, a, uh, it's fun. I'm looking forward to, I'm going to go race. Uh, Merlin in the Rolex Big Boat series out in San Francisco. Cool. So we can visit my San Francisco office as well as go out there. And we're actually having, uh, it's going to, for auction for United Policyholders, just to take some people out anytime they want to, just to help raise some more money for United Policyholders. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's fun. I like my sailboat racing, and that's, that, that boat's the big one. That's fantastic. Um, I mean, we're pretty much out of time. I wanted to get into, I guess I'm just going to thank you for the Merlin blog. You know, I mean, it's been around for how long now? 16 Ever since years. I can remember, 16, 16 years. years now. You know, we started a YouTube channel because I felt like starting a blog would never work. But you managed to start a blog that is constantly to this day always being referred to. You know, always new stuff. Do you write in that thing every day pretty much? It's almost, it's I write, I write, yeah, a lot of people ask me, do you do this yourself? Do you write it? Yeah, when it says my name, I write it. Yeah. Uh, we obviously have other people in the law firm write, and we have guest bloggers come on, but um, more than 50% of everything there, probably 75 or 80% is is me writing and, and I you know I usually people ask how do you come up with the ideas and they're something we read cases just every day on this I mean what I'm working sure. on a lot is what we write or what we find it's coming along and the, uh, and because of that you know and writing for this long it's a really great research tool yeah. for people so if you want to know about matching I mean we must have 50 articles about matching in there if if you know your name will pop up right your education yeah so it's uh, 
you know, it's, it's something that I enjoy doing. I think it does help out public adjusters and Definitely. contractors and policyholders as well. And attorneys as well. Other attorneys read it. A yeah. lot of defense attorneys tell me that we know, you know, we, we can even see what home offices of various insurance companies, you know, from, you know, the, from the Google analytics. You can oh, that's hilarious. It. I guarantee you the people in Bloomington, Illinois, oh, know, yeah. that are reading it aren't, you know, just, you know, it's, it's not the farmers out there that are reading it. Yeah, so, exactly. But, but it's a great search tool, and also I get a lot out of it. You know, when you, well, I found that when I teach people, it makes me learn the subject matter better. Uh, I get then feedback from other individuals, a lot of private notes back and forth. It generates a lot of discussion in a field that this is what I've you know, dedicated my adult life to doing. So um, it, I, I get, while, while a lot of people thank me for it, I think I get more out of it by just doing it. You feel like you learn more from the people who actually read it. They're learning from you, but then and, when they give you their comments and their idea or opinion, whatever, you're just like, oh, wow. Well, you didn't. have to because you have to write your thoughts. You know, you I'm forced to write my thoughts down. About but they're only what, your thoughts. What they are, but I have to learn it, and then I have to explain it in a certain way, and mm -hmm. then other people come back with other comments about it. So it's, you know, that's one reason why in speaking, I probably speak 25, 30 times a year. I always feel like I... I I get more out of it, you know, at least I try to. I try to do a good job to keep people educated, but uh, it's, uh, I do believe I get much more out of it. It makes me a better attorney and, and a lawyer for my clients. Well, Chip, I want to thank you for taking the time out. And thank you so Vince, much. Congratulations on your, what you're doing for everybody else. I applaud you. I think this is fantastic. And uh, uh, I'm looking forward to, to I'm actually, uh, for everybody, I'm going to go buy his book. I think you should, too, for $47. <laughs> You're crazy not to have that, you know, reference material there. And I good luck on all your educational sessions you're having now, too. I think uh, it's needed in the industry. Well, I'm only taking after you. I mean, you've been doing, giving back to the community for so long. I think people are very grateful for it. And uh, I just want to thank you for all that you do for, for us in the public adjusting side. You've always been an advocate for us. Uh, obviously for the policyholders and just for the entire for the entire community. I really do appreciate it. So thank you so much. Great. Thank you. All right, Chip. Thank you.